Chapter 19 of Marjorie Dean, High School Sophomore by Pauline Lester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter 19 A Bold Stand for Honor. Thrilled with the discovery she had just made, Marjorie's first impulse was to seek admittance to the room so long denied her and confront Mary with the knowledge of her good deed. Remembering her general's injunction, let her alone, she refrained from yielding to that impulse. Her pride, too, asserted itself. It was not her place to make advances, all too likely to be rebuffed. No, she must keep her secret until time had done its perfect work. Reconciliation lay in Mary's hands, not hers. She decided, however, that the girls must never know who had been the author of the warning. So far as she was concerned, it must remain a mystery to them. "'Where is Mary?' she inquired of her mother as they sat down to luncheon a little later. Mary's place at the table was vacant. "'Oh, she was invited to luncheon at her friend Mignon's home,' returned Mrs. Dean, frowning slightly. I suppose she is hoping that Mignon's team will win the game this afternoon. I suppose so, returned Marjorie absently. Her mind was still on her discovery. Should she tell Captain about it? Perhaps it would be best. Briefly she acquainted her mother with what she had so recently found out. I am not greatly surprised, was her mother's quiet comment. Mary is too good a girl, at heart, to persist for long in this ridiculous stand she has taken. I am glad you said nothing of it to her. She must clear her own path of the briars she has sown. When she does, she will have learned a much-needed lesson. But, Captain, it's dreadful to think of Christmas coming and Mary and... I... not... friends faltered Marjorie. I can't give her a present, and I'd love to. I suppose she doesn't care to give me one. We've always exchanged gifts, ever since we were little tots. Perhaps everything will be all right by that time. If it isn't, well, I have a plan. But I'm not going to say a word about it yet. Wait until nearer Christmas. Then we shall see. Oh, mother, if only you could think of something that would make us friends again, just for a day, I'd be so happy. Marjorie clasped her hands in fervent appeal. Wait and see, smiled Mrs. Dean enigmatically. As Marjorie set out for the high school that afternoon, she hummed a jubilant snatch of song due to the bright ray of sunlight that had pierced the gloom. She could afford to wait if waiting would bring about the miracle that her mother had hinted might be wrought. She quite forgot basketball until she reached the steps of the high school. There her mind reverted to the coming contest and she set her lips in silent determination. Her team must win today. She could not endure the thought that Mignon's team should be the one to play against the freshmen for sophomore honours. It was half-past one o'clock when she entered the building and hurried to the dressing-room at one side of the gymnasium, 
which was reserved for her squad. The first to arrive, she hastily prepared for the game. Meanwhile, she kept up an earnest thinking as to the course she had best pursue if Mignon and her supporters overstepped the bounds of fair play. But she could make up her mind to nothing. Mere contemplation of the subject was so disagreeable she hated to face it. While she pondered, Susan Atwell bustled in with Muriel Harding. The two remaining members of the team appeared soon after and a lively dressing and talking bee ensued. The sophomore team, which Marjorie captained, had chosen to wear their black basketball regalia of the year before, but instead of the violet F that had ornamented their blouses, a scarlet S now replaced it. Black and scarlet were the sophomore colours. Should their team win, they could wear the same suits in the more important game to come. It was reported, however, that Mignon's team would shine resplendently in new suits of grey, ornamented with a rose-coloured S, which Mignon had provided at her own expense. If they won, she had promised her adherents the prettiest black and scarlet suits that could be obtained for the Thanksgiving Day contest. It is needless to say that they had also set their minds on carrying off the victor's palm. The game had been set for half-past two o'clock, but long before that hour the gallery audience of Sanford schoolgirls, with a fair sprinkling of boys from Western High, had begun to arrive. Opinion was divided as to the prospective winners. Marjorie's team boasted of seasoned players whose work on the field was well known. Mignon had not been so fortunate. Neither Daisy Griggs nor Anne Easton had played basketball previous to the opening of the season. But Mignon herself was counted a powerful adversary. The sympathy of the boys lay for the most part with Marjorie's squad. The Western High Lads were decidedly partial to the pretty brown-eyed girl, whose modest, gracious ways had soon won their boyish approbation. Among the girls, however, Mignon could count on fairly strong support. As it was a practice game, no special preparations in the way of songs or the wearing of contestants' colours had been observed. That would come later, on Thanksgiving Day but excitement ran higher than usual in the audience, for it had been whispered about that it was to be some game. "'It's twenty-five after, children,' informed Jerry Macy, who, with Irma Linton and Constance Stevens, had been accorded the privilege of invading the dressing-room of Marjorie's team. Jerry had elected to become a safety deposit vault for a miscellaneous collection of pins, rings, neck chains and other simple jewellery dear to the heart of the schoolgirls. Marjorie's bracelet watch adorned one plump wrist while her own ornamented the other. Look out, Jerry. You'll make yourself cross-eyed trying to tell time by both those watches at once, giggled Susan Atwell. Don't you believe it? was Jerry's good-humoured retort. They're both right to the minute. Remember, girls, that we've just got to win, counselled Marjorie fervently. Keep your heads and don't let a single thing get by you, 
We've practised our signals until I'm sure you all know them perfectly. We'll win fast enough if certain persons play fairly, nodded Muriel Harding. But look out for Mignon. A shrill blast from the referee's whistle followed Muriel's warning. It called them to action. The next instant five black and scarlet figures flashed forth onto the gymnasium floor to meet the grey-clad quintet that advanced from the opposite side of the room. United cheering from the gallery constituents of both teams rent the air. The contestants acknowledged the applause and ran to their stations. A significant silence fell as the referee poised the ball for the opening toss. Mignon LaSalle's black eyes were fastened upon it with almost savage intensity. She leaped like a cat for it as it left the referee's hands. Again the screech of the whistle sounded. The game had begun. It was Marjorie who won the toss-up, however. She had been just a shade quicker than Mignon. Now she sent the ball flying towards Susan Atwell with a sure aim that made the onlookers gasp with admiration. Before the grey-clad girls could comprehend just how it had all happened, their opponents had scored. But this was only the beginning of things. Buoyant over their initial gain, the black and scarlet girls played as though inspired and soon the score stood 8-0 to zero in their favour. Mignon LaSalle was furious at the unexpected turn matters had taken. Her players, of whom she had expected wonders, were behaving like dummies. They had evidently forgotten her fierce exhortations to fight their way to victory regardless of expense. Well, she would soon show them their work. It did not take her long to put her resolve into execution. Joining a wild rush for the ball, which Harriet Delaney was valiantly trying to throw to basket, Mignon made good her word. Just what happened to her, Harriet could not say. She knew only that a sly, tripping foot, unseen in the turmoil, sent her crashing to the floor, while the ball passed into the enemy's keeping, and they scored. Inspired by the sweetness of success, Mignon's dummies awoke and carried out the instructions, so often impressed upon them, in secret, by their unscrupulous leader, in a series of plays that for sly roughness had never been equalled by any other team that had elected to take the floor in that gymnasium. Yet so cleverly did they execute them that beyond an occasional foul they managed to elude the supposedly watchful eyes of the referee, an upper-class friend of the French girls, and rapidly piled up their score. When the whistle called the end of the first half, it found the score ten to eight in favour of the Greys. It also found a quintet of enraged black-clad girls nursing sundry bruises and vows of vengeance. "'It's a burning shame!' cried Susan Atwell the moment the teams had reached the safety of their dressing rooms. "'I won't stand it. My ankle hurt so where someone kicked it that I thought I couldn't finish the first half. And poor Harriet, you must have taken an awful fall.' I did. Harriet Delaney was half crying. Muriel Harding's dark eyes were snapping with rage and injury. 
she was nursing a scraped elbow which she had received in the melly. "'I am going straight to Miss Archer,' she threatened. "'I won't play the second half with such dishonourable girls. "'That Miss Dutton, the referee, must know something of the rough way they are playing. "'But she is a friend of Mignon's. "'I don't care much if Miss Archer forbids basketball for the rest of the season. "'I'd rather have it that way than be carried off the floor or wreck. "'I'm going now to find her. She's up in her office.' "'Jerry saw her just before she came to the gym, didn't you, Jerry?' "'She turned to the stout girl who had just entered. "'At the beginning of the game, Jerry, Constance and Irma "'had hurried to the gallery to watch it. "'Seasoned fans, they had observed the playing with critical eyes that saw much. "'The instant the first half was over, "'they had descended to their friends with precipitate haste. "'Yes, she's in her office.' Jerry had appeared in time to hear Muriel's tirade. "'I think I would go to her if I were you, Muriel. "'Those girls are a disgrace to Sanford.' "'Let's all go,' proposed Harriet Delaney wrathfully. "'I'd rather do that than stay and be murdered.' Marjorie stood regarding her players with brooding eyes. She smiled faintly at Harriet's vehement utterance. "'Girls?' she said in a clear, resolute voice. "'I told you this morning that if anything like this happened, I'd go straight to Mignon and have an understanding. I'm going. I wish you to go with me, though. I have a reason for it.' She walked determinedly to the door. "'What are you going to say to them, Marjorie?' demanded Muriel. "'You might as well save your breath. They'll only laugh at you.' "'Miss Archer is the person to go to.' "'Not yet.' Marjorie shook her head in gentle contradiction. "'Please let me try my way, Muriel. "'If it doesn't work, then I promise you "'that I'll go with you to Miss Archer. "'Oh, yes, I wish you all to stand by me, "'but don't say a word unless I ask you to. "'Will you trust me?' "'She glanced wistfully at her little flock. "'Go ahead.' ordered Muriel shortly. We'll stand by you, won't we, girls? Three heads nodded on emphatic assent. All right, come on. We haven't much time left. How many minutes, Jerry? Eight, replied the stout girl. Can Irma and Connie and I come too? No, I'd rather you wouldn't. We'll forgive you. Now beat it. Although Jerry was earnestly endeavouring to eliminate slang from her vocabulary, she could not resist this forceful advice. Suppose we go around through the corridor and use that side door nearest Mignon's dressing room, suggested Marjorie. Then we won't be noticed. I'd rather we weren't. This is really private, you know. Four black and scarlet figures gloomily followed their leader. There were two doors to each dressing room. One led into the gymnasium, which was situated in a wing of the school. The other led into the corridor. Through the half-open door of Mignon's dressing room, the sound of exultant voices reached the advancing squad. She stood with her back toward them. We were a little too much for them. Mignon's boasting tones brought fresh resentment to her injured opponents. 
I told you that... Miss LaSalle. Marjorie's stern voice caused the French girl to whirl about. We heard what you were saying. We came over here to notify you that we do not intend to play the second half of the game with you unless you give us your promise to play fairly and without unnecessary roughness. Mignon's black eyes blazed. What do you mean by stealing into our room and listening to our private conversation? she demanded passionately. Marjorie faced the furious girl with calm, contemptuous eyes. Before their steady gaze, Mignon quailed a trifle. We did not steal into your room. If you had not been so busy boasting over your own unfairness, you could have heard our approach. However, that doesn't matter. What does matter is this. Come here, Muriel. She beckoned Muriel to her side. Show Miss LaSalle your elbow, she commanded. Muriel rolled back her loose sleeve and showed the raw red spot on her soft white arm. Mignon laughed sarcastically and shrugged her scorn of the injury. You can't be a baby and play basketball, she jeered. Neither can you behave like a savage and expect it to pass unnoticed by at least a few persons, retorted Marjorie. She was fighting hard to control the rush of temper which this heartless girl always brought to the surface. Harriet was badly shaken up because someone purposely tripped her. Someone else kicked Susan on the ankle. It is too much. We won't endure it. Now I give you a fair warning. If any girl of my squad is handled roughly during the next half, she intends to call a halt in the game. The rest of us will then leave the floor and go to Miss Archer's office. Think it over. That's all. Marjorie turned on her heel. Without so much as a glance toward the discomfited girls of Mignon's team, she walked from the room, followed by her silently obedient train. "'Well, what do you think of that?' gasped Louise Selden. Nevertheless, she had the grace to turn very red during Marjorie's stern arraignment. Mignon turned savagely upon the abashed members of her squad. "'If you pay any attention to her, you are all babies,' she hissed. "'You are to play the second half just as I told you. Don't let that priggish Dean girl scare you. She won't go to Miss Archer. She knows better than that.' You're wrong, Mignon. She meant every word she said. Daisy Griggs's ruddy face had grown suddenly pale. I'm going to be pretty careful how I play the rest of this game. So am I, echoed Elizabeth Meredith. If Miss Dean went to Miss Archer, it would raise a regular riot. Anne Easton and Louise Selden nodded in solemn agreement with Daisy's bold stand. In her heart each of them stood convicted of unworthiness. The righteous gleam of Marjorie's clear eyes had made them feel most uncomfortable. "'You're cowards, every one of you!' burst forth Mignon, her dark face distorted with rage. "'And if—' Trill! The referee's whistle was summoning them to the game. 
Mignon ran to her station resolved on vengeance. Four girls followed her to their places, divided between two fears. Awe of Miss Archer and the disaster that would surely overtake them if they persisted in their former tactics, acted as a spur to their sleeping consciences. Fear of Mignon became a secondary emotion. They vowed within themselves to play fairly, and they kept their vow. The second half of the game opened very well for Marjorie's team. She passed the ball to Susan Atwell, who scored, thereby winning a salvo of hearty applause from the gallery. The watchful spectators had not been blind to the unfair methods of the Greys. Two goals followed in their favour. So far the Greys had done nothing. Unnerved by Marjorie's just censure and the fear of exposure, they paid little heed to Mignon's glowering glances and frantic signals. They played in a half-hearted, diffident fashion, quite the opposite of their whirlwind sweep during the first half. The black and scarlet girls soon brought the score up to fourteen to ten in their favour, and from that moment on had things decidedly their own way. Time after time Mignon cut in desperately for the basket to receive a pass, but on each occasion her teammates made a wild throw. Marjorie's team, however, played with perfect unity, working in several successful signal plays. Try as she might, the French girl could do nothing to arouse her players. Their passing became so delinquent that once or twice it brought derisive groans from the male spectators in the gallery. As the second half neared its end, Muriel Harding made a sensational throw to basket that aroused the gallery to wild enthusiasm. It also served to take the faint remaining spirit from the disheartened greys, and the game wound up with a score of thirty to twelve in favour of the black and scarlet girls. They had won a complete and sweeping victory over their unworthy opponents. It was a proud moment for Marjorie Dean as she stood surrounded by a flock of jubilant boys and girls who had rent the gallery air with appreciative howls, then hustled from their places aloft to offer their congratulations to the victors. "'I'm so glad you won, Marjorie,' cried Ellen Seymour. Lowering her voice, she added, "'I could see a few things. I'm not the only one.' But what happened to them? They actually played fairly in the second half. All except Mignon, but she couldn't do much by herself. Marjorie smiled faintly. We must have discouraged them, I suppose. We never before worked together so well as we played in that second half. Wasn't that a wonderful throw to basket that Muriel made? Splendid, agreed Ellen warmly. I predict an easy victory for the sophomores on Thanksgiving Day. Marjorie breathed relief. Are you coming to see us play? Or are you going away for Thanksgiving? Was her tactful question. Ellen plunged into a voluble recital of her Thanksgiving plans, quite forgetting her curiosity over the sudden change of tactics of the defeated Greys. Several girls joined in the conversation, and thus the talk drifted away from the subject Marjorie wished most to avoid. 
In Mignon's dressing room, however, a veritable tornado had burst. Four sullen, grey-clad girls bowed their heads before the storm of passionate reproaches hurled upon them by their irate leader. They were seeing and hearing Mignon at her worst, and they did not relish it. It may be set down to their credit that not one of them took the trouble to answer her. Beyond a mute exchange of meaning glances, they ignored her scorn, slipping away like shadows when they had changed their basketball suits for street apparel. Outside the high school, they congregated and made solemn agreement that now and forever they were through with Mignon. Several friends of the latter, including Miss Dutton, the referee, dropped into the dressing room, and to them Mignon continued her tirade. But the face of one hitherto ardent supporter was missing. Mary Raymond had fled from the school the moment the game was ended. For once she had seen too much of Mignon. She had tried to force herself to believe that she was sorry for the latter's deserved defeat, but in reality she was glad that Marjorie's team had won. She determined to go home and wait for her chum. She would confess that she was sorry for the past and ask Marjorie to forgive her. Putting her determination into swift action, she left the high school behind her almost at a run. Once she had reached home, she paused only to hang her wraps on the hall rack, then posted herself in the living room window, an anxious little figure. When Marjorie came, she would open the hall door for her. She would say, I surrender, Lieutenant. Please forgive me. She smiled a trifle sadly to herself in anticipation of the forgiving arms that Marjorie would extend to her. She was not sure she merited forgiveness. But when at last Marjorie came in sight of the gate, Mary vented an exclamation of pain and anger. Marjorie was not alone. Up the walk she loitered, arm in arm, with Constance Stevens. The old jealousy, forgotten in Marjorie's hour of triumph, swept Mary like a blighting wind. She turned and fled from the hated sight that met her eyes, a deserter to her good intentions. End of chapter 19 Recording by Ashley Jane